Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're not even going to be in this room. That that sounds very meta. By the miracles of technology and time travel, we will zoom back about a week to the Continuum Convention, where we discuss tonight's topic of what makes a good convention game. So are you actually here now, Paul? No. If you are, can you bring back next week uh, for what was going to be next week's lottery numbers? Oh, it's... This is all getting dangerously metaphysical. It's like Primer all over again. <laughs> oh, God, no, 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 no. <laughs> More of that another time. But So this week's topic, what makes a good, good convention game, which we discuss at a games convention. Filled with convention gamers. Along with our guest, Mike Mason. And we have an audience. That's some scary shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> but before that... Talking of uh, Continuum, yes, that was a, an interesting convention, guys. How did you uh, get on with it? I spent half, of, well, no, a third of my time at Tropical Birdland. Oh, you did? Yeah. That's kind of a, a bit unusual. <laughs> yeah, just happens Tip, uh, Tip's birthday fell right in the middle of the convention. So I earned husband points, at least, on my uh, my real-life character sheet and took it, took it to Tropical Birdland. I like um, that you have a real-life character sheet, Matt. Yeah, it's got empathy <laughs> zero, but it's got it's got husband points building up on there. <laughs> what what skills did you get ticks in this in the past week? Ooh. Bookshelf building, yes. Oh, flat yes. packing, yeah, yeah, yeah. What would that be on the Call of Cthulhu character sheet, though? Oh, um, there's no mechanical, mechanical, mechanical repair. Mechanical yeah. repair, yeah. 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 You and your ever-expanding uh, bookcases. I, I, yeah. I, actually, I think it would be combined mechanical repair library use role, stroke That's... animal handling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, given that the birds are in the same room, hence why having uh, glass doors on all the bookcases. Yeah. I do like those pictures of all your precious books. With the parrot right in front of them, with just that thin glass door sat there, and the parrot's looking at it, thinking, just, "One day, one day, he's you only can see the thought bubble coming yeah. out of his head soon." Every day, he has to remember to close those doors. One day, he'll forget. <laughs> oh, yes. Or worse, one day he'll close the door, and I'll be on the other side. Oh of my it. god! <laughs> Thankfully, there's only about four shows <laughs> you can do that with. <laughs> A little feathered bookworm. Oh. But yes, Continuum. <laughs> How was it for you, Scott? Yeah, I had a marvellous time. Um, I didn't game quite as much as usual. I only ran six games out of the eight slots. And you uh, did, like, sleep and eat, you know, so more, less, less gaming than usual. Yes, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we had the Saturday morning off to do uh, another seminar, not the one that we've actually recorded this time. Uh, but we did a seminar again with Mike Mason. Uh, unfortunately, Matt couldn't join us because... I was uh, at Birdland. Yes, but this one was on um, basically what makes entertaining horror games. And, yeah, I thought that went quite well. Um, and we also got to see a seminar as well after we did the podcast recording. Uh, CJ Roma did a fantastic seminar on basically uh, parapsychology. Yeah, I'd like him to do a seminar at every convention I go to. It was absolutely marvellous. And Mm -hmm. I think the chap probably does have plenty of anecdotes up his sleeve and is a real-life parapsychologist. Mm. He is the person in those films when they phone up and say their house is haunted and the person that turns up with all those, you know, gauges and devices with dials and so on and, and electronic devices, he's that guy. But speaking of conventions, you've been to Gen Con. Yes, I did. You I was suck. at Gen Con for a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just restraining the lucky bugger. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was the one of the three of us that was at Gen Con this time. I 
We had a holiday with my family, which culminated in arriving at Indianapolis for a couple of days. So I was with Mike Mason uh, and Sandy Peterson and the rest of the Chaosium team uh, on the Friday, uh, which was lovely meeting people. And I had the pleasure of meeting quite a few um, people who knew about the show and listened to the show, including Jennifer Martin and Corey Welch. Also, I visited Keeper Dan at his home and then met him again at the con. I wasn't stalking you, Dan, honestly. Mm. He says yeah. this now. <clears throat> yeah, you, you haven't seen the recording studio with all the pictures of Dan pinned up all over the walls. It's, <laughs> it's quite eerie. His eyes follow us around the room. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that and try and ignore the stairs. <laughs> and in the evening, uh, Keeper Dan and Mike Mason and I all went along to join the audience of the Ennis, uh, or the Pale Grain Award Ceremony, as I like to, to call it. Uh, oh, that, that picture that was on Facebook afterwards of Cat Tobin struggling to hold all the Ennies that they'd won was fantastic. They did win a lot of Ennies, yes. I, we don't have time in the show to list them all. <laughs> Cubicle 7 uh, also won an award for the London box set, which, yep, which uh, I think nice. we were all involved in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hooray in, us. In, Go in, us! In one way or another, yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, also I saw uh, Zach S or Zach Sabbath going up and collecting awards for and he reaches to the desk the maze of the blue medusa which I have a copy of right here yeah Paul is holding it up to the microphone for your edification <laughs> well yeah. you can you can uh, say something about it and I met Zach at the uh, the lamentation stand and he was kind enough to uh, sign it to <laughs> and Paul. doodle it <laughs> thanks for coming out Zach with a little picture of uh, my barbarian type character with uh, an axe as big which, as your head and it is a beautiful looking book is isn't it just I mean, that, that is a fabulous book so i've been having a bit of a read it looks pretty cool that's the maze of the blue medusa which won i think two n's it's also been a good month for various publications we've been working on coming out in print, or at least uh, in some form or another. I think I mentioned on a previous episode that the Section 46 Operations Manual is now out. Um, since then, we've had the print edition come out of the uh, the World War Cthulhu London uh, book, uh, which, again, all three of us worked on. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, I really uh, like that setting. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the book came out fabulously. I'm, I'm obviously a bit biased, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm very happy with the, the kind of look and feel of it because it's kind of nice having a, a home front book maybe i don't know if it might appeal more to british people um but i think the london setting during the second world war uh, and all the stuff that well you you were the kind of lead person on it's got all the stuff you did with it is, that's great it looks really good cool I, and the other book of course uh which actually only our word on is uh the things we leave behind which is the first collection of scenarios from stygian fox publishing uh and it's a collection of modern day call of cthulhu scenarios that they've been described as mature i i don't necessarily particularly like that label because you know it's got all sorts of other connotations or you know other connotations have developed that actually tends to make that sound a bit cheap but i mean what that really means is it sort of strays into some uncomfortable subject matter that most call of cthulhu scenarios avoid is it top shelf called cthulhu material scott uh, you'd have to stick See, I'm your own the tone already, aren't I? But yeah, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Comes in a black circle or a black cellophane bag, yeah. Yeah, yes. Oh, the, the special edition does. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it. Um, so the PDF's out now, right? The PDF has gone to backers at this stage. It should, by the time this episode goes out, 
have gone up on sale on drive through RPG, I hope. Yeah. Uh, but if not, it'll be within a day or two. Cool. And I believe there's a print-on-demand option as well. So. And there'll be a link in the show notes, won't there, Scott? Hooray! Maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but enough of that. What time is it, Scott? Is it time for the Lovecraftian word of the week? And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is awesome! <laughs> yeah, the, the listeners at home will miss Paul turning around in a panic and checking the recording levels here to make sure Matt didn't push them over into the red. Yeah. So when we say the word awesome, <laughs> is there any way to say it without, you know... Yeah, but then you're not saying it right, are you? No, not really, no. I think. I, I do feel the need to say dude after it as well. <laughs> yeah. I think when I do the Lovecraft quotes, I will have to put, we, we all will have to put in the word dude after awesome. Or rad. Or... But do, do you no, don't to... say rad, Matt, please. <laughs> don't do that. Do you, do you want to define what awesome really means, Matt? Well, as an adjective, one, inspiring awe. Or two, you might see a pattern here, showing awe. Three, as a slang, very impressive. Which is all very well, but what technically does awe mean, Matt? This is why I was saying you get a double bubble of definitions here. As your bonus round, a noun, one. A feeling of respect or reverence mixed with dread or and wonder, often inspired by something majestic or powerful. Two, and these are archaic meanings, the power to inspire dread, or just simply dread. So, yes, that idea of awesome being something that fills you with dread or religious awe or the sense of majesty and so on is something that has been largely lost with its, its modern-day use. I can't remember the last time I heard awesome used in its dictionary definition. So if I went to an awesome party, would that I, be okay? I, I'd expect God to be one of the guests. Or would I, should I be, like, quaking in the corner and hiding behind the curtain? Yes, pretty that's much. pretty much what I probably would do anyway. Yeah, that, that's yeah, me that, at a party normally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be the right use of the word, yeah? yeah it would, yeah. yeah. The party was awesome, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, hid under the blanket and didn't come out until everybody had gone. I'm, I'm still feeling existential dread now. It was that awesome. Yay. So Lovecraft used this 31 times. Awesome. Yeah, yeah he used it a hell of a lot. Um, and he used it, obviously, in its technical term, because I, the, the slang usage of awesome, I think, only really started... I don't remember hearing it before the 90s. I mean, maybe in the 80s, but I, I, I consider it to be very much a sort of mid-90s onward thing. Mm-hmm. But it's... yeah. It has changed everything. I mean, you know, awesome now really just means very good. It's it's a good example of you know the way the meanings of words and the usages of words change dynamically over time, and you know I think you'd have to be you know fairly grumpy or fuddy duddy you know, like me uh, to actually rail against the change of a word like this, and yeah, you know, uh, no, with the if, phrase "you damn kids," yes, come, get come off my lawn, there. that kind of thing, yeah, <laughs> but. No, I, I, I've come to accept the fact that awesome doesn't mean what it used to. But literally does, right? Oh, for fuck's sake. 
<laughs> Button pushed. <laughs> There's a line in the sand somewhere. That, that it's literally there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word awesome in his work. From the strange high house in the mist. And when tales fly thick in the grottos of tritons, and conches in seaweed cities blow wild tunes learned from the elder ones, then great eager vapours flock to heaven laden with lore, and Kingsport nestling uneasy on its lesser cliffs below that awesome hanging sentinel of rock, sees oceanward only a mystic whiteness, as if the cliff's rim were the rim of all earth, and the solemn bells of the boys told free in the ether of fairy. And from the thing on the doorstep. I was made his guardian, and called on him twice weekly, almost weeping to hear his wild shrieks, awesome whispers, and dreadful droning repetitions of such phrases as, I had to do it, I had to do it, it'll get me, it'll get me, down there, down there in the dark, mother, mother, Dan, save me, save me. And finally, from Hypnos. My friend was vastly in advance as we plunged into this awesome ocean of virgin ether, and I could see the sinister exultation on his floating, luminous, too youthful memory face. Paul, what's a memory face? I don't know. It's a bit like memory foam. It's a kind of like mattress that you. <laughs> so, you know. so, 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 it's, so it's a face where if you punch it, it then you know reverts to its original form afterwards. Now, there's a scenario waiting to happen right there. <laughs> it's floating, luminous, too youthful, so more youthful than it should be, memory hyphen face, memory face. Well, to be fair, it is a great many years since I've read the entirety of the story Hypnos, and it probably makes perfect sense in context. But I, I couldn't resist choosing this particular line because out of context, it is just so fucking weird. That is a strange phrase. Well, see if you can use that in everyday usage, folks. Yep. The memory face. I'm going to see if I can pop that in one of my applications at work now. <laughs> and now on to our main feature. What makes a good convention game? Well, as we mentioned before, this was recorded live at the Continuum Convention... There's not really much more to say about it other than to thank the people who were in the audience and who asked us questions. Uh, that makes up about the last half of the chat. So, enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And with us we have... Uh, Mike Mason. Hello. And a whole audience at the Continuum Convention. Say hello, everybody. <laughs> I okay. wish we hadn't used directional mics now. Huh? <laughs> we are coming live from the Continuum Convention in Leicester. Uh, we're on the Sunday of the convention, so we've had plenty of gaming goodness between us. And everybody's feeling fresh, relaxed, <laughs> and ready to and not do even, their best. Not even slightly hungover, no. <laughs> as, as you are on the last day of any con, yeah. <laughs> uh, but conveniently enough, our topic this episode is convention games. Well, particularly, what makes convention gaming special? <laughs> and this is we all, where we all sit and look blankly at each other. Um, well, to start off with, um, let's just say a little bit about what sets convention games apart. What makes a convention game? What's the, the general format that, um, that we have? It's a four-hour slot, generally. 
uh, with up to six players. Usually, if, if you're lucky, at this con, you get your own room, which is kind of nice, so you're not yep. disturbed mm -hmm. by other games. Uh, but many cons, and indeed in the hall here, uh, you've got a shared area. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the things that make convention games, or, you know, define convention games, is, well, for a start, they're played at conventions, but um, that they're self-contained things. They're, they're games that you make readily accessible, easy for people to get into, uh, and to deliver an entire experience generally within about a three- or four-hour slot. In the main, they're one-shots, aren't they? Yeah. But on occasion, some people do play a two-session game, perhaps, which goes over two slots. Occasionally. Well, I mean, we do have one convention in the UK, LongCon, which is designed for even longer games. You know, people get together and play mini campaigns over the course of a weekend. But that is quite rare, and it's normally a whole bunch of discrete little games. I think we've had one instance so far that I know at, um, at this convention. I think Steve Ellis has been running uh, part one of Time to Harvest. Oh, yes. And that's gone over a couple of, a couple of different slots so far. Yeah, third one, I think. Well, he actually, he actually went into the second scenario as well and I think finished that up, so played the first two whole scenarios of the campaign here. But I think we'd all agree a con game as a standard is like that's a one-off. There's a start, a middle, and an end in four-hour slot, and that's what you cover. But, um, but even then, I, we regularly play one-shots, I guess. You know, th those of us who are members of clubs particularly play one-shots at clubs. We quite often play one-shots with our games, uh, ga you know, gaming groups at home. So what is it that sets a convention game apart from... I mean, apart from the, the location at a convention, what is it that differentiates a convention game from just a normal standalone one-shot? You've got pre-gens for a start which normally you don't have to sit down, unless you're playing like a game like Dead of Night, for example, where you can roll up a character in about three seconds flat. But normally you would turn up and you would have a pre-generated sheet that you'd sit down with, with a background that is pretty linked in with the scenario, I'd say nine times out of ten. They're not just disparate entities that just happen to wander into a scenario. I think more than that, though, you're, you're showcasing a game, really. It's, it's you know, not necessarily like the system, but the scenario... If you're turning up with your local group, or whether it be a club or just you know around your house, you might be. It, it might be you know for us it might be play testing something for other people that's just running something. But when it's your regular group, I don't think you feel the same uh, sense of urgency, the same sort of strength of demand to 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 make it the very best. Which I guess yeah. would be good if we could. But but when you're at a con, you sat down with a bunch. Often you know yesterday afternoon I had a game. There were two names on the list that I recognised. I didn't know the rest of the people. And there's a sense that, it, there's a sense of um, you know, not knowing those people, wanting to do your best for them. And whether you're a player or a GM, you kind of want to bring something to the game and, and make it, you know, sort of showcase what you can do, I guess, is how I would put it. Yeah, and it's more than that, because you don't know who you're getting in the game. It, as a... As a GM particularly, I mean, you know, obviously this applies to being a player in a convention game as well, but it means that you have to be a lot more adaptable. I mean, if you're playing regularly with your own home group, you know their personalities, you know their beats, you know their preferences, and you know how to read them, you know how to read the room very easily. And I think as a convention GM, you have to learn how to attune yourselves to all, all, all sorts of things. Um, I mean, it's, it's not just kind of picking up whether you know, something is crossing a line for someone or you know, making them uncomfortable or whether they're just plain not enjoying it. But it's also that 
you know, that, that, um, that matter of being able to focus the spotlight selectively, of being able to draw in perhaps quiet players without... Um, I mean, this is a really difficult thing sometimes. Um, it, 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 it can initially be quite difficult to tell the difference between someone who is perhaps a bit reticent and is being overshadowed by other more dominant players at the table and is struggling to get a word in, and someone who... I mean, it doesn't happen very often, particularly at conventions, because, you know, the kinds of people who go to conventions. But I have seen this a couple of times. People who really don't like being in the spotlight. They're almost there as a, you know, an audience member who you know, wants to roll dice every now and then. And, you know, if you sort of put them on the spot and ask them, what are you doing, they actually get uncomfortable. And, you know, it's just a question of learning how to read all these people and learning the skills to deal with them and make sure they have fun. I think someone just mentioned about convention games. I think one of the really cool things about convention games is is that you do get a chance to try something new. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people do try out new games, even if they've bought the rules and they intend to play it. Um, often they may wait for a convention to actually give the game a go as a player to kind of see how it runs or to kind of reinforce their, you know, what they've read in the rule book. Or they may just try it out at the convention and go like, yeah, I really like that, and then go and you know, buy, pick up the game themselves and, uh, and try it at home. Or even you have played it at home and um, you want to see how other people do it. Are you doing it right? So I think that's a really cool thing about convention gaming as well. Yeah, it's a very sort of low-risk, low-investment way of getting to try out new games. Um, you know, you don't have to go out and buy the game yourself. You don't have to, you know, rely on any of your friends picking it up. Yeah, you, you can just find someone who's offering it and just hope you can get to the sign-up sheet before everyone else. I recommend a baseball bat if you do want to get to the sign-up sheet. <laughs> sometime, sometime. Um, although thinking, as oddly enough, me being this end of the table, at the complete other end of the spectrum... I come to a convention to get to play the games that I very rarely get to play at home because no one runs them <laughs> or uh, doesn't run them enough. So I, I very rarely try new games at conventions, if ever. So what is it, really, that keeps us coming back to conventions? I, you know, I, I, I've been coming to UK conventions, I guess, for about 12 years. Paul and Mike, you've been doing it for much longer than that. Sure. Uh, and and Matt, I mean, you've been, you must be have been coming for about ten years. Yeah, I'd say about ten. So I mean, you know, for all of us, this is obviously a huge part of our lives. I mean, what the hell do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> I'm sleep deprived. I'm hungover. I I, I I don't know which way is up at the moment. Why, a, why why do I do this to myself? There is a portrait of you next to the definition of the word masochism in the Illustrated <laughs> Dictionary. You realise? I would say it's a sense of um, getting away from normal life and immersing yourself for a whole whatever it is. Like here, it's like two or three days, well, three days um, of being away from real life. I don't even really like leaving the convention and going into town because I feel like, you know, I've, I've kind of left that world then. I like just sort of staying here and being immersed in it. Um, and, you know, if we're going to order, if we're going to get food, then it's like order takeout pizza or whatever and it gets delivered. That's because there's nothing edible within a three mile radius, that's why. <laughs> well, yeah, that's something you may have to suffer if you go to conventions, but, you know, that's just a by the by. But no, I think it's it's great being able to play three games in a day because I know when I get together with friends to play, well, you know, it's usually like an evening or maybe an afternoon and an evening. It's I never get together with friends and play all Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, and then get up Sunday morning, yeah, you know, nine o'clock, and and do it again. Um, yeah, I mean that's an interesting point because yeah. You know, 
It's not that you know you, you don't meet a lot of friends at conventions, and you know it's not you know, There's certainly plenty of socialising that goes on, but there's something about the regimented nature of the slot structure that that, that drives that. That is sort of it demarks that time. You know, these are the four hours that you set aside for gaming, and and with the best will in the world, if you decide to do that with your home group for a weekend or something like that, it just probably wouldn't happen. I imagine for a lot of people here, I, I would think you're sort of packing in as many games this weekend as you probably play in several months at home. Um, that may not be the case for some of us, but, you know, that's, that's <laughs> and there are, true for me. I mean, there are people who, you know, by location or nature of work means they don't rarely have a game at home. So actually their, their main actual, you know, hit of gaming is at a convention. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much the internet is affecting that because, you know, I know for a long time that one of the appeals of conventions to me was that there were certain people I only ever saw at conventions. And, uh, you know, the people I really enjoy gaming with and I knew, you know, if I was going to get a chance to game with them, it would almost invariably be at conventions. A lot of these people now I play with regularly via Google Hangouts. Yeah. What, the main thing that keeps me coming back to conventions is the, just the new people I meet here, or the you know the people I you know, I don't get to game with online who you know I see regularly at conventions. It's great not just gaming with these people, but having a pint afterwards, or just sitting around chatting, catching up, and you know the social aspect of, of conventions is a huge thing. As, as we're talking specifically about the gaming aspect, yeah, it, it is. It's. Getting to game with lots of new people, see how they approach different games. I mean, not just kind of learning, as you, as you were talking about, Mike, uh, learning new game systems or seeing, you know, seeing how someone might you know, run a particular game system, but it's learning the different techniques that other GMs and other players use um, and you know, seeing you know, what works for you, what doesn't. Um, yeah, it, it's a very enriching experience. There's also the really cool thing is you can play in somebody else's game that they've designed, then go back home and kind of just steal it and run it for your group. You know, you kind of take the broad <laughs> strokes of the scenario and think, that was really cool. My group at home would really enjoy that. So it's kind of a cool kind of way of, um, as you say, not only broadening, you know, tips and, and, and uh, guidance on, you know, how to be, a, you know, a better GM or a, a more engaged player, but, you know, you can pick up cool plots and things like that, which is uh, quite mm. handy as well. Yeah, Matt, what is it that keeps you bringing you back, uh, bringing you back to conventions? Uh, creature of habit, amongst other things. Um, but no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just forward momentum. Yeah. <laughs> but no, um, for a long time, it's the, it was the one place where I could actually get to play Call of Cthulhu regularly, um, being, say, amongst the favourite of games that I, um, that I play. That at home, back at the um, the MKRPG Club, where it's kind of the hub of the main gaming that I take part in on a regular basis. Um, for a while, there was a lot of people that weren't running Cthulhu, or we were running um, just the long campaigns one after the other. Well, we didn't get really many doses of one-shots. Um, but at conventions, mm. turn up and get to play all those games. I wish, oh, I wish that would have been voted in at the club. I wish someone would have run that finally. Yes, I can get to play these things. So actually getting the hit of the stuff I like. What is it that we think can, can help us make the best of the convention gaming experience? Um, Obviously, you know, most of us you know, on the panel spend more time actually uh, GMing than, than playing at cons. But you, know, you, you were saying, Paul, that's that sort of change for you. You're, you're playing much more than GMing now. So, yeah. so, but but yeah, I mean, it, it, th this question is you know, sort of both ways. As, as, a, as a GM and as a player, how, how can we make these games sing? Well, I think as a GM, as I said earlier, I used the phrase sort of showcasing your, your scenarios and, and so on. But I think as a, just importantly as a player... Um, you want to sort of come to the game and you know put some energy into it and, and not just kind of 
sit back and be passive and kind of see what happens. Because if you get a, a whole group like that, I mean, this is this is true whether you're at home or at a con. Um, but I think particularly at a con, because often you're, you're with people you don't know, you kind of got to take license to kind of step up to the plate and put on your best game head, really. You know, if there's something there, you know, go and grab hold of it and, and run with it. And certainly as a, as a GM, I mean, that's, that's great if you've got players that do that. Conversely, if you haven't, then it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like pushing a, a big ball uphill, really. <laughs> How about you, Matt? Yeah, kind of building on what Paul said, actually, and as uh, displayed quite aptly by Tony here in um, the last game slot this morning. <laughs> Be direct and just do it. <laughs> Don't just talk around the issue, yeah. just bloody do it. And I think if you are somebody who's quite forward and quite able to, you know, put yourself into the game try and help other people do so as well so I mean as a GM as Scott said earlier it's part of your sort of job to sort of shine the spotlight on on different people and share out that time but I think you know I'm very much sort of think you can do that as a player as well so if you were sort of really active in a scene next scene I'd try and sort of step back a little bit and you know that guy over there hasn't really said very much sort of try and throw them a bone and sort of say you know or oh, maybe you could do this bit you could how about you go and do this, you know, and try and... But obviously, if they're, if they're not keen to do that, then, you know, don't pressure them, but try and give people the opportunity so it's not always, like, about you. Yeah, I, I would say um, convention games are, you know, as we've said, in the main one-shots. Uh, there's a limited amount of time, normally three or four hours. And I would say, you know, try and do your best as a player to engage engage with it as quickly as possible don't hang around and and think oh should i should i shouldn't i just yeah, just do it you know engage with the plot engage with the other characters and the npcs and you know say yes rather than no if, if you see what i mean you know don't don't question oh should we go and do this thing yeah just go and do it and see what happens you know <laughs> yeah. that, make, make the action come alive you know you've got a limited time so make the most of it be dramatic and, and and go for it if you can yeah don't try and second guess yourself and sort of think oh if i do this thing it might ruin the game i think competent gms uh, who tend to be running uh, you know they tend to have had experience running con games they want you to do they want you to play your character they want you to if you do some crazy things they can probably cope with it when you say Scott, so if you are in Scott's game, <laughs> whatever you want to do, however crazy it is, just you know, just give him hell. It works. Mad. He likes yeah. that. He likes that. Yeah. No, no. I actually I really know, you do. do like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I will take um, yeah people going off at tangents and doing crazy things over. Um, it's cyclical. You know, the worst thing, you know, as you were touching on before, is cyclical dis discussions of, you know, making the same plans over and over again and never actually wanting to commit to them. Yeah, we, we, you, uh, that, you that find just, that in you know home groups yeah. have the luxury of doing that, and you don't really have the luxury of that in the time limit you have you in the convention game. So, uh, yeah, just go and do it. Do it. And uh, kind of conversely, I mean, we've we focused on this very much, I think, each from the player's perspective here. From the GM's perspective, I think to make that as easy as possible for the, the players, you want a, a strong premise. You want a, you know, a, a situation uh, and characters that the players can immediately grab onto. And you know, I think motivated characters, characters you know, with, with uh, the, you know, the background that gives them something specifically they want to accomplish or a strong relationship with another character that's going to drive drama. And then you know, something that kicks all that off, makes that happen and ways of, of escalating that and you as the GM keeping the pace going. You know, that, that, that's, that's, that's what makes it work. 
I, I would say, you know, ideally as quick a setup as you can get, you know, so you're, you're yeah. straight into something. Um, whether that's, you know, it's why in media res, in the midst of things, games are very popular mm-hmm. at conventions. You know, you just suddenly drop, you're in this situation, what do you do? Or, you know, or if it's a bit more of a, uh, an investigative type of game, yeah, a quick setup with a kind of, okay, so this is how it is, this is what I want you to do, okay, go do it. And I think this is one of the things that's made Call of Cthulhu so popular as a convention game, because it's set in what is ostensibly the real world. Uh, that there isn't a lot of canon that people need to know. In fact, you know, generally, it, you know, the, the, the less you know about the game, as long as you're happy with the basic premise of it, the more you'll probably enjoy it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not like maybe some other games where if no one's played it before, you're going to have to sit down and spend 10 or 15 minutes explaining bits about the game world, or if there's a disparity of knowledge about certain aspects of the, um, the game background, it's going to advantage some players over others as they'll know, you know, what, what they can do. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I think that accessibility is a hugely important thing. I was going to say one of the um, almost like a two-pronged thing that I like to bring to a table in that instance as well to help roll things along Um, be prepared to have some bangs something that will help kick the action along when things get slow and also an art form you pick up when you're running convention games is pacing Um, you don't want to have something go particularly slow you want to be able to keep pushing action forward because you haven't got much time and if you've got a story generally you want to try and cram it in and get it within that four hour period so make sure that (laughs) Why are you looking at me and doing yeah. that? How, how many of your games actually fit in the bloody four-hour period, Matt? Well, they fit in four-hour period generally. Just the, th- the four, this morning was three hours. The four-hour period between 8 right. p.m. and 3 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> I have been known to do that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I think also, you know, you, sometimes as GM, you just have to kind of condense mechanics a bit or condense the scene or kind of shortcut things. I mean, a great um, case in point with this is uh, your scenario has got Blackwater Creek. Uh, which is in the um, Keeper's Green. Uh, Keeper Screen, right? Yeah. And uh, you wrote that and ran that for us as a one-off. I've run it as a convention scenario. It runs great in four hours, but you kind of have to, you have to play fast yeah. and loose with it and kind of push through it. And it's it's fairly high octane to, at, at times to you know to drive it through to some sort of conclusion. Uh, but conversely, we've had, um, is it Corey Welch yeah. on, online? Yeah, he's, he's run it as a, uh, an online game that's recorded that's, that's out there to listen to. Yeah, it's, it's Sky on Cthulhu, it's Cthulhu, right? Scott Cthulhu. And yeah. um, that went for about eight or nine sessions? Yeah, because I, the, the convention version of the setup involves gangsters who are basically going to this small town in Massachusetts and, and trying to shake things up. There's an alternative which is a much slower, more investigative version involving the Miskatonic University. And that's the version that he ran. And he had players who were taking well, playing it for a start very cautiously, which you don't get in convention games, but you do get, do get much more in home games because there's the luxury and the time to do that and they also really got into sort of discovering the location and wanting to interact with every pc and and uh, explore every location and yeah but you know what, what for me is normally a three or four hour game ran for 20 hours for them yeah and it's just a i mean it, that's it's not that one's better than the other but no, it's, no, it's um just a very different kind of experience yeah i mean to me i guess it's a bit like the difference between going to the cinema to watch a film or going to the theater to watch a play and the experience of that being more intense or kind of, you know, sitting at home and watching a box set on your TV, it's, it's, it's quite a, a different kind of experience. You know, you get up and go to the loo and get some snacks and, you know, you're back and forth and you can pause it and stuff. 
and that's kind of how that that kind of home game feels. But but when you play a, a con game, it's a much more intense experience. But I think I want to be able to take some of that and put it into my home games. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that sort of brings us on to the next point, which is what in general do we think we can learn from the convention gaming experience that will make you know, the, the, the rest of our games stronger? Um, I think, um, for me, it is that kind of immediacy, uh, that kind of injection of drama or action into a game. Because as I, I think we all know that a lot of home groups do do the circular pondering. I, I have a group that will spend entire sessions pondering the plan, which is fine. But you kind of don't want it to happen all the time. Um, uh, I, I, I co-wrote uh, the 40k RPG Dark Heresy, and one of the sayings we had uh, in developing that game was that the game is never weakened by having the Holy Inquisition knock down the door going, this is the Inquisition! Um, because immediately you have some drama and something for the players to react to. So if the players are all sat in the uh, the library, you know, pondering a plan, um, the thing I've learned from convention games is to kind of, you know, have the cultists come to them or the shoggoth to appear through the, the drainage pipe in the library or whatever and bring the action to them uh, to get them to, you know, get them to do something, get them to react uh, and bring that immediacy and uh, injection of drama to, you know, to help things along really. Two shoggoths walk into the room with guns. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas uh, I was thinking the, uh, the Raymond Chandler approach to that, two Inquisition members walking. Yes. <laughs> what would you say, you've, um, have you taken anything from con games back, you know, to the like club games or anything like that, Matt, would you say? Yeah, I've, I've come across one of the great things here is that you do find GMs that are quite innovative, that bring their own style of, uh, style of running things to the club, like uh, Praise Where Praise is Due. Paul Lawrence's convention um, handouts, they're amazing. If you get to play in any of his games, the level that the man goes to in terms of running props, I try to at least emulate a small percentage of that in some of the stuff I produce. And also, I, I have been well known for laminating. Yeah, I stole that from another GM at a convention. <laughs> so it's, it saved my toner. Amazing, amazing builds with that. But you also get to pick up things like, oh, that's actually an interesting way they've done it. I don't necessarily agree with it, so I'll go and do it, uh, do it in my own way. You can get to see how things maybe shouldn't be done, and they think that, yeah, actually, I can, I can improve on this, this, or this is something I should avoid when running my own games, that you maybe think, actually, being on the other side of that, seeing it as a player or seeing mm. it as a GM, you think how, yeah. whoa, it actually appears quite different from the other side of the table. Mm. You get to appreciate a different, a different slant, a different lens on things. Yeah, you get to experience a lot more people's approach to, to gaming. I think that's that's really yeah. valuable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and going back to what Mike was saying earlier, I think yeah, learning it's it is a masterclass in controlling pace and. Um, yeah, our friend Gaz, um, you know, co-host of the What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, uh, yeah, has, has said to me at conventions many times that uh, you know, it came up the first time I, I had a four-hour game slot and I ran a game that actually ended up wrapping up in two hours with a fairly big bang. And, um, you know, I sort of said afterwards, oh, I'm sorry, I, yeah, I, I thought this was going to last for longer. And he said, yeah, I don't think I've ever been in a game that suffered from having too much pace. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell. Um, so I, w one last question before we, or at least one last point to talk about before we start uh, opening up to, to questions from the audience. Uh, I mean, this is something when we were talking to Pindar earlier uh, that he brought up, which is, you know, at a convention like this, a, a common complaint is that there aren't enough games on offer. 
I'm sure half of you in the audience wouldn't be here if there was something you could have signed up to. <laughs> um, but no, every every slot so far, yeah, I've, I've not just at this convention, but just at every convention I've gone to, you know, there have been you know people who have not been able to find enough games or not find something they want to sign up to. Um, so I mean, that's primarily from a GM's point of view, but also from a player's point of view, people coming to conventions and so on, what are, they, what are the sort of barriers to entry? How, you know, how can we overcome? How can we make the process of having the confidence to offer games or having the confidence even to come to a convention and interact with a whole bunch of strangers and you know, do strange things with dice? You know, how do we do that? I think it's hopefully a little easier in these days than it used to be when I started coming to conventions. Uh, because there was no internet really then. Mm. So you really had to kind of just, um, you know, make the decision, turn up and kind of hope for the best. And uh, and certainly all conventions are very different and most are very welcoming. But there are a few that, that kind of expect people to kind of almost know what to do when they get there. Um, but obviously these days it's a lot more easy with the, with the internet because most conventions have a website. Uh, they hopefully have a linked forum. And so if it's the first time you can actually say, you know, I'm, I've never been to a convention before, I'm coming, what, 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 what do I need to know or what do I need to bring or what, what do I need to do when I get here? Uh, and so um, there's always some helpful souls who have been before and hopefully they can uh, guide the way. Um, but I think if you're, you know, first convention and you've never played or, or certainly if you've never run at a convention before, you are bound to be nervous. So I think, you know, I was certainly nervous the first time I ever ran at a convention. Um, but as soon as you start playing, you very quickly realise you're playing the game you like, you're playing with other people who like the game, and actually, hey, what, you're having a great time, and you didn't even realise it, and suddenly, that, you know, your confidence goes up, and you kind of forget the anxieties, and, and you concentrate on the plot, and the players, and the game, and, and it's great. And those people you're sat around the table with, that you've never met before, you'll remember them, and you'll see them in the bar later, or the canteen, uh, and then maybe you're in a game with, you know, one of them again, the next session, and... Then next time you come to a con, you see some faces you recognise. And after a couple of conventions, mm. you know a bunch of people. And you're just part of the... the suddenly, you're part of the convention scene. I mean, there's a spectrum of people that, that, that come to, to games. But they're all gamers. And, you know, if you're a gamer, you're coming along. You'll fit in. Yeah. Whereas I find I'm terrible with names, but I remember faces. Like the one That's in particular. That's why we have instance. name badges, Matt. Yeah, which I keep. Oddly enough, I've forgotten to put on. Um, <laughs> he, he's Matt, everyone. Hello, hey. Um, but there is one particular individual that I always uh, have great, great delight in smiling, shaking his hand, and saying, "I still begrudge the fact you blew my foot off in that hot war game three or four years ago." <laughs> but I say it's, we still have a smile about it and laugh and joke. But yeah, we make lasting friendships here, mm. even if you did blow my foot off. <laughs> Grew back, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll echo what everyone else has been saying. I, certainly, when I first started coming to UK conventions, I found the the, the experience quite intimidating. I, I think the first one I came to was the first ever continuum, appropriately enough. And um, yeah, uh, I'd, yeah, I'd met Paul through uh, the Milton Keynes RPG Club, and he'd convinced me to come up. And I, I think you were the only person I knew here initially. Was I? <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah, it was just overwhelming being amongst I'm all I'm sorry, those everybody. I was going to say, it's <laughs> your fault. Yeah, yeah, it's all his I've, fault. Yeah, it's my fault. Um, but, but, yeah, it, it is exactly as you said. I mean, you know, as you get to know more people, as you get involved with games with, with different people, and you get that degree of confidence, then it just, you know, it, it's like coming home. So with your first experience of going to a Gamescon that evening when Mike 
blindfolded you and led you through the corridor in the <laughs> no, bottom of that might have house. Been. <laughs> no, no, that was a couple of years oh, later. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hopefully it still had the same... Um, <laughs> Shock, shock value is intended. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any, any time since then that you've blindfolded me, it's not had the same thrill, Mike. Yeah. It, it, does, it does get duller the longer you do it, yeah. <laughs> so, shall we open it up to questions? Yeah, I think so. Um, if any of you have any questions, what, what I'd request is just come up. Um, yeah. Push Mike out the way. Yeah. 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 Uh, come up to the microphone here and please, yeah. We could spin that around so they can just come up and. That involves work and technology. And, yeah, as long as you can do it with that unplugging. Yeah, yes. there's, plen there's plenty of room on the. Fantastic. <laughs> Not on that, I'm into it. We can even share a microphone. It's almost like the old uh, National Lottery finger. It's you, it's pointing directly at people. <laughs> okay, um, my first question What's the best. Okay, yeah. okay, what's the best uh, convention game you think you've run? The best experience you've had running a convention game? Oh. Uh, and, and also playing. I mean, either, doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, I, can, I can jump in here initially. I, I think the most memorable convention game I've ever had, and I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, was many years ago I wrote um, uh, an Unknown Armies one-shot that I've run at a number of conventions uh, called Lampposts in Bloom. And... Um, it might have been the first time I ever... No, but one of the first times I ever ran at a convention uh, was at the Conception Convention down at uh, Hoban Nash uh, near Bournemouth. And this, this convention takes place uh, at a holiday camp that's made up of, of lodges and chalets. And um, we... Uh, you know, because the lodge was available, we played the game in the lodge. And it started off, uh, you know, fairly intensely and escalated a bit. And what happened was the the players really, really got into it, got into the characters, and there was lots of conspiring and backstabbing and and secrets and lies, and people got a sort of peering off to conspire with each other. And um, you know, the, the first time it happened, you know, two players just sort of got up, had a side conversation just outside the main room in the corridor, and. Um, one of the other players said, oh, yeah, uh, picking up the dice, oh, can I, can I eavesdrop on this conversation? I said, I, I don't know, can you? Just pointing to the door. <laughs> uh, and, and from that point onwards, it sort of became a semi-LARP, uh, right to the point where two of the characters ended up trying to kill each other at some stage, and the players were just rolling around the floor of the lodge, <laughs> grappling with each other. <laughs> and Yeah, it, it, I think it's the single most memorable con game I've had. It was quite difficult getting rid of the body afterwards. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the earth was nice and soft, thanks to the rain. <laughs> Which there is a lot in nature. Yeah. I think probably the most memorable con game has to be Gatsby and the Great Race, which no doubt I won't say everything about, because I imagine somebody else might say something about this. But I think um, being uh, in what was called the Corridor Crew of Keepers, <laughs> um, being able to actually wander into a game room, point at a player, drag them out, blindfold them, <laughs> uh, subject them to noisome terror and the like, uh, and then um, prop, you know, drop them into a, a completely different gaming group, completely unannounced, and leave them, um, was a fantastic experience in, in kind of uh, just really messing with the players. Well, that was the one, wasn't it, the first time you ran that? <clears throat> 
where you blindfolded one of the players, took him out into the corridor, did all this, and then sometime later the player said, oh, I was really worried you were going to push me down the stairs. Yeah, yeah, the terror really worked. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, yeah it, was a, it was a very memorable experience uh, of a game for me, yeah. I think one of the nice things about that was a lot of people had a sort of not a completely shared experience, but a, a common experience. Then they were able to sort of discuss it afterwards, which was... Uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of discussion in the bar afterwards with the various different uh, playgroups that were all playing simultaneously. Um, yeah. I think one of the most memorable ones for me would be... Uh, it was a Cthulhu game, but it was using the hot war mechanics that you ran, Scott, um, and it was myself and Kiri... It was a very kind of, well, potentially sort of player versus player scenario and that, that system very much lends itself to that. Kiri was playing a deep one hybrid. It was, it was decades after the, uh, the, the, the fall of Innsmouth and it was kind of a revisitation of that. And I was like a, more like a sort of government agent sent in. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um... And, you know, through uh, situations that sort of escalated... Well, basically, Kiri managed to use this kind of deep one seduction on my character completely against my will. But the, 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 it, from a, such a fantastic dice roll from Kiri that it just sort of turned things around so strongly. It was just a very uh, engaging and kind of dramatic game, really. Yeah, I mean, with a single dice roll, yeah, I, I seem to remember he just basically destroyed your character. And re- left well, him, kind of rewrote it. Yeah, yeah but yes, changed all his motivations, changed his view on the world, and, and ultimately, thanks to the repercussions that left him a broken shell of a man at the end, it was beautiful. <laughs> and, and I guess one of the things about that is it isn't a system that I would play at home generally, so it's, um, it's not something I would usually get into. It was... It was it was mostly people I knew in the game, so it wasn't the fact that it was different people. It was just a, um, yeah, it was a, a different system. Uh, it was a one-off game with a, a very sort of strong story arc. Well, a very strong story arc that was largely kind of improvised from, you know, a, a starting premise. I think for me, uh, as a player, uh, we've already had it mentioned, so I'll move on more to detail my GM experiences. Actually, playing Gatsby for the first time at Gen Con a couple of years ago. Um, both actually me and me and Tiff played in that and moving between the different tables and then suddenly thinking what the hell is going on that was just this era of strange weird and completely unlike any other game but for in terms of GM experiences at the table I'd not bring it round to uh, because our questioner he was actually experienced with um, a Cold War Cthulhu game that we had a few months ago um, where the without giving it away because I'm running it this evening uh, there is uh, if anyone's here playing it, I don't know. There is a moment in the game where you realise what's happening and that essentially it hinges on that you are you have a man's life in your hands and it's what do you do with him? It's, do you consider it for the greater good to just give him up? Do you uh, try to uh, try and save him? Do you try and defuse the situation? And the amount of emotional debate and like moral compass finding and such that just went, I think it must have been easily an hour and a half that you as the players were having that debate for, really... Um, just the intensity of which you all argued your own case that were all equally valid points and ultimately led to one of the characters just deciding, not quite on the spur of the moment, but when they learnt one specific piece of information, that they said, no, I'm going I'm to put myself in his place and I'm going to sacrifice my character to save his, was just a really powerful emotional moment in, in the culmination of that game. It's great when you get a genuine moral dilemma that divides people, I think. I think often... 
you know, often it's kind of very clear and you, there's a sort of party uh, cohesion that those are the bad guys, let's go and get them. You know, it's kind of clear what course of action to take. When you're in a game where there is a, a genuine moral dilemma that people are divided mm -hmm. over and they start discussing it. And as GM, you can kind of sit back and... Yeah, it's just I sat back and just watched with glee because yeah. there is no bad guy in that scenario. It's just a poor hapless sod that's called, um, brought this all on him and, and everything else around him. all bad guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, that was a real standout moment for me. I was just saying, if you wanted to respond to that at all, yeah, Chippy, yeah I, I would say, yeah, Matt's game was, that one he ran, was actually <laughs> terrific, because essentially we had the point where, okay, we could send a guy off on to be mm. sacrificed, and we said, no, he's got to know about this, and whether or not, you know, what was the right thing to do, mm. and I was actively campaigning for it, he's got to know where he's going to be sent, it's not a suicide mission, uh, and it really went on for, for sort of like a good hour, um, and, uh, you know, at the end of it, we all sat back and went, that was fantastic. And we all gave ourselves a round of applause. And it's certainly one of the best gaming experience I've had. And uh, one of the things I, lo I, I keep coming back to with these conventions is that I look for certain people to uh, run scenarios and uh, for me at games. And in most cases, they're sat behind the table here because I know they're going to be interesting scenarios. You know, uh, I'm going to get you. a lot out of them. And that Cold War one was actually terrific. Yay, thank you. <laughs> Do you want to angle that up slightly? Uh, there's, there's a knob there. Yeah, it is, it is, yeah, there's that, that big one there. Yeah, anyone else with any questions or comments? Okay. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the really important points of etiquette that both players and GMs should adhere to when running or playing a con game? That's a good Ooh. one. That Etiquette. is an excellent question. <laughs> um, I mean, th there are some fairly, you know, simple and and you know, um, obvious ones. Like, um, <laughs> you know, I I haven't noticed being this being a problem at too many UK conventions, but it does come up. Is the biggest thing in etiquette, I think, is good hygiene. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I have been at a few conventions where there are a couple of individuals at a you know, four or five day con who will turn up at the beginning having showered and will not see the point of doing so again before the end. And, you know, if you're in a warm room uh, and it's close and so on, that is a fairly unpleasant thing. But mostly, I think, I, th this may be something we touched on the, in the podcast before, I think most of most of what makes for good games, not just in etiquette, but etiquette is a big part of it, is just simple social skills. You're, you're treating games like any other social interaction. I mean, you're, you're playing a game, you're taking on different roles and so on, but still just treating the other people around you with respect and decency, um, you know, not doing anything that makes other people genuinely uncomfortable or, you know, and being willing to back off if you do... Um, yeah, treat other people with respect. That, that's what it boils down to. I think, obviously, everything that Scott just said, uh, but also, um, please don't assume um, what the players around the table uh, do or don't know if, if you're jamming. Um, please ask if they've um, played this system before, or they have an understanding of the game. Um, just, you know, because often convention games, you do... you do often have at least one player in your game that has never played this system before or is 
or maybe never even role played, and somehow got dragged along to a convention by by their gaming friend. Um, so just you know, take a couple of seconds to get the you know the judge the level of experience around the table because if if the table is full of very experienced people who know the system inside out, obviously that that gives you some clues to kind of uh, you know get things going very quickly. If not, you know, take a moment to just um, you know help the uh, the new guys out, as it were. I think as much as it's uh, it's fun to be in character all the time and you know not break your immersion and sort of stay in the game. Sometimes, because you are a group of people that don't necessarily know each other, or whether you do or not, really, it's good to kind of you know step outside that and you know just sort of say, "Is everybody happy with this? You know, you you enjoying? It? Does that work for you? Um, you know, because sometimes you put things on as as GM or I guess as as players as well. You put things on other people. Um, you know." Uh, is it okay if I shoot your character in the back of the head now? Are you going to be pissed off about that? Um, and some people are like, oh, yeah, that's, that, that sounds great. You know, uh, we're near the end of the game. Go for it. That seems like just the thing to do. And, and other people are going to be like, oh, no, goodness sake. That's like, you know, I'm going to be out of the game now. Um, I think uh, establishing at the start of the game little things like, I, how long is this game going to run? Are you going to have breaks? When are you going to have them? whether you're going to have them so so people are on on the same uh, uh on board with that paying attention to what's going on in the game when the focus isn't on you i think is is polite and well it's it's a it's important otherwise you know it comes around to you and you're like oh sorry what what sorry what did he say because I, I wasn't listening you, you kind of got to be on the ball all the time, I think. Yeah, put the fucking phone or tablet down. <laughs> that, that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Okay, well, you, you uh, summed it up there, Scott. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think pretty much everyone's covered, uh, covered it before me. The only thing that I would add onto that is that some games that I know we run, or rather Scott run, um, tend to deal with some very adult themes that can potentially push a lot of buttons. For God's sake, state it up front that you're going to deal with this because you don't want to have suddenly someone in the uh, middle of the game go, I'm not dealing, I can't deal with this and walk out. That if you state it from up front, everyone knows what um, hymn sheet you're singing from. That can be a so. difficult one though, can't it? Because you don't always know what's going to um, kick people off, you know, what's going to, mm-hmm. what's going to stir people's emotions, what, what, what what bothers people. Oh, true. I mean, so you, I mean, if you've got things in your game that you know are really um, likely to be controversial, then, then bring it up. But I guess being sensitive to... We've had that reaction. I, I mean, I'd say you know, part of it is a willingness to back off when it happens. Because, yeah, it, it, there, there are certain warnings you can give ahead of time. Um, but like you say, I mean, some of them are, uh, are very, very unpredictable. Other times, it's very, very difficult to give those warnings without completely spoiling, you know, perhaps a big event that's going to happen in the scenario. Um, so, you know, you, you can perhaps give a more general, vague warning and just sort of say, if this hits any genuinely uncomfortable areas, then, you know, I'm willing to stop or change or back things off. I mean, how would you deal with it in general, Matt? Well, there's, this actually is something I learned from um, Todd Furler in, um, in the States. So, again, when you go into a convention game, how to loot and steal things from other people. Um, that he ran a game set uh, very much with the Westboro Baptist Church as the um, centre of the scenario. So yeah, he sat down and said, "What well, this is what this group does. These are some of the examples of uh, kind of the shit that they put out there. Is everyone comfortable with this before you get going? And actually really laying the ground to say, this is the context, the kind of framework that binds this whole scenario together. So it wasn't a spoiler per se. I mean, one thing you can't, as you said, you can't predict what everyone's going to experience. I found I found out during a game about spiders impregnating people that I had a severe arachnophobe, uh, arachnophobe in the table. That went well for them. 
<laughs> make, made me rather uncomfortable, but hey. I mean, I think it's doubly a problem if you're running a horror game because your intent is to, you know, instill a, a feeling of horror in people at times. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of got to be something that people are okay with. And that's a, that's a, a very tricky thing to, uh, to gauge. Yeah, and, and the, the obvious acid test is as you sit down to run the game, look around the table who sat there. If you suddenly find yourself with a bunch of children around the table, obviously you may want to temper your game slightly differently as opposed to a, a different group. And again, on the game sign-up sheet, putting this is a uh, game aimed at mature adults. Uh, you know, it has um, you know um, various themes. Uh, you know, you can put that up right up front before they even sign up to this game, so they can make the choice before they sit down at the table as well, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my default blank sign-up sheet has that on. <laughs> Could we extend that question to the audience? Is there anything that people would observe that you know they feel is not genuinely generally addressed, you know, etiquette-wise or, or whatever at the table? Is there anything, Sue? Would you have we covered it, or is there something that uh, you'd like to say? Go ahead. Um, I think what I've got left that I would say onto that is about players being conscious of giving everybody enough spotlight time mm-hmm, yeah. because you do end up particularly as you talked about earlier with somebody who's a quiet player and I have to say one of the least useful things on a um, on a sheet ever for a character is to call them something like taciturn mm. because then people sit there and say absolutely nothing and you all have to be respectful of making sure that everybody gets their turn because they've come to play the game even those people who appear to be just happy to be observing you need to make sure that they've got their chance to do their observing and give them their spotlight moment if it turns out to be doing that. Yeah, excellent point. I think that's a great point about the, the, the character backgrounds when you're making character backgrounds for your games. Never say you know, they're a quiet individual, they're, they're quite um, introverted, things like that. You might say they're normally introverted, but today they're not. Because <laughs> if I get that, it's like, oh... Okay, well, I kind of sit there and don't say anything. Well, that's no good, is it? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there should always be proactive characters. Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyone else? Please. Uh, I would say always thank the GM. Oh. <laughs> and yep. if, you, if, the, if you didn't like the session, keep your rant about why you didn't like the session under five minutes long. <laughs> is that directed at Matt? No, I was going to say actually that that is that one of the uh, one of the players who's played in my games at this convention has pushed that button with me by the fact that as soon as the uh, kind of the last dice roll hit the table, he just got up and walked away twice. I'm thinking, okay, give me some kind of indication that you liked it or you well, didn't. The indication, or... Matt, was he came back a second time? <laughs> maybe, maybe because he'd already signed up. I don't know. <laughs> I think with a convention game. Um, there's normally a, a quite a, a large social aspect uh, between the games and, and after the games, uh, normally at the cafeteria, bar, restaurant, wherever it's being held. And they're, they're great opportunities to kind of debrief and, uh, you know, give some critical feedback, whether it's positive um, or even negative. But, you know, but obviously try and do it in a, in a positively critical way rather than a you know, negatively critical way. Um, because I think most most uh, GMs, you know, want to hear what they did well. But equally, they you know they do want to learn uh, if they did did run a, an, a mistake or did something that didn't really gel with the, a player. You know, it's good to know sometimes. Anyone else? Oh, 
Who's Tony? So we've got 50 plus years of convention experience in front of us today. If you could boil down your own experiences into one point for a neophyte GM going to a convention, what would that be? Mm. <laughs> Do not be afraid to take the gloves off. Smack them hard, smack them quick and smack them hard. I'd say um, just don't be afraid. Go for it. Um, yeah, just go for it as much as you can, you know, with enthusiasm and guts so, because um, you'll enjoy the game and your players will enjoy the game. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, yeah. I would say um, know your scenario really well and make sure that you're really happy with it uh, and think through what might happen. Um, and obviously you can't prepare for everything the players might do, um, but if you've got a good scenario and you're confident with it and... You know, if you can run it for somebody else first before you come to the con, then then that's great. Um, but I mean, that's that's kind of what I look for. If if I'm running a scenario that I'm not really happy with, then yeah, well, I'm not really happy. Um, I'd sort of give a counterpoint to that, which is you know always trust in your ability to improvise. Um, that. You know, going back to what we said about having to change things if uh, you hit areas that make people uncomfortable or you know, if, if, the, if things go in an unexpected direction and you want to make sure the players still have fun, you know, j just um, never feel like you're constrained by what you prepared. Just be prepared to go off script and, and try to have as much fun as possible. And don't spend the first hour making up characters. <laughs> please bring pre-gens unless the game has a really quick fire character generation system pre-gens get them on the table let make sure people understand what's on the back and front ask check question check understanding and just then get on with the game so that was a point each i think we, we could carry on with that but uh, <laughs> Does that help, Tony? I don't know. Was that? Uh, well, I'm not neophyte, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's, that's, of course you're not. I think. I think we're close to running out of time. It's about five two now, so we're going to have to wrap up and pack up. So I think at this stage, it's just you know a question of saying thank you very much to everyone who came along and asked questions. Um, it, lovely to see you all here. Yeah. Thank you very much, everybody. Indeed. Thanks. Thank you. Hey. Cheers. Yeah. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It's that time once again where we thank the kind people who have backed us via Patreon. As I've mentioned before, we rely an awful lot on the money that, that these backers give us to pay for things like our hosting costs, our bandwidth costs, the, the flash new equipment that we use to record this. And we do have at least one interesting upcoming project that we, you know, we've, we, we, we could do with a bit of money for, and I think we're close to getting there. And our first thanks today goes out to Anders Bjornberg. Thank you very much, Anders. Indeed. Thank you very much, Anders. And then some long overdue thanks to Jason Janicki. And, and cheers to you, Jason. Indeed. Yep, cheers, Jason. Cheers, Jason. And now it's time for... Ask Jackson.
Once again, it's that time of the show when we channel the spirit of Jackson Elias and you, the backers and listeners, get to ask questions of his celestial presence. And this week's question comes from Brett Kramer. And he asks, What's the proper etiquette in writing letters of condolence to the families of your deceased porters, stevedores, bearers, valets, servants, retainers, mercenaries, men-at-arms, batmen, guides, graduate students, research assistants, postdocs, flunkies, hangers-on, patsies, and assorted victims? Oh my. Can I just say that this took a few takes because Paul kept pronouncing patsies as pasties, which probably gives a clue as to what their ultimate fate was. I've had characters, I think, who would write letters to pasties. (laughs) I've had characters who I'm sure have ended up as pasties. Mm. It's it's all a bit Sweeney Todd. Well, maybe maybe corner Sweeney Todd, but... You're making me hungry now. (laughs) No dinner for you. We haven't even had breakfast yet. This is the problem with getting up at this ungodly hour of the morning. It's lunchtime, Matt. Can I I point out the hour of day that the Miskatonic University podcast people record? There's a time difference there, isn't there? No, no, the time for them. Uh, uh, Keeper Murph is on those recordings at 4.30am his time. That's just... Example of sand loss, surely. <laughs> that would probably work for best for Matt if he didn't go to bed and then recorded. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> well, this is obviously a big part of being an investigator because if you are investigating the mysteries of the mythos, ultimately you're going to get a lot of people killed. Yeah. And the difficult part for me is keeping track of them all. You have to rely an awful lot on good record keeping. And obviously, in a, you know, if you're, you're investigating in the modern day, as obviously we all are, um, then information technology has made a lot of this easier. You can keep databases online. You can, you can keep a contact list on your mobile phone of all these people and then just put some special annotation in there for the form of their death. You know, I was, I was going to say this is what gives justification for having the accounting skill or in modern day having computer use because it's the ability to hit mail merge. <laughs> <laughs> I know there, Scott, you said you're going to get a lot of people killed. If you're not now, doing it wrong. having played with you, Scott, that tends to mean that you burn their house down and they die. So uh, do you put little stars next in this list? Do you put little stars next to the ones that you were responsible for their death? I'm not going to explain my methods there because that may end up being used against me in a court of law. It might be. Yes, that's a good point. But to me, I think writing these letters to all these um, people out there that are totally innocent of what's going on, Perhaps there was some mercenary that you hired or some uh, body who, you know, helped you out and you're writing a letter of condolence to their family. Isn't that the perfect time to tell them everything about your investigation? Because, you know, the way life goes, our lives as investigators are precious and short. But what better person to step into our shoes to carry on the fight against the unknown horrors of the universe than somebody that we don't really know but we've dumped a letter on telling them everything about the case? 
Yeah, Wouldn't they be like strongly motivated once we died to go out there and fight the good fight? Especially if they're a haberdasher, that would make it even better. <laughs> and who thought chain letters were bad? I mean, being told to forward you know, this letter to seven other people, otherwise your dog's going to catch fire or something. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just irritating. But suddenly being drawn into a global conspiracy against the forces of evil, which will almost certainly leave you a broken shell of a human being or a red smear across the pavement. I mean, that just really sucks. I swear that I get caught by my junk filter. <laughs> yeah, we're sorry about the death of your brother, but we were trying to fight these terrible evils from down below the sea. Yeah, you fancy avenging him? Yeah, exactly. And also, you now you've put the phrase mythos chain letter into my mind. <laughs> I think we need to start one of those to see how far it goes. <laughs> But going back to Matt's point about mail merge, I mean, the important thing is to keep a good library of form letters that cover all eventualities. I and mean, you can either use mail merge to insert the cause of death in there and just keep a database of standard ones, so, you know, eaten by Shoggoth, you know, stomped on by Nialathotep, uh, you know, took his own life after seeing something unspeakable from beyond space and time. Or, or, Wishing you a happy birthday. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it gets embarrassing when you put the wrong field, the things in the wrong field. Yep, died in, died in mysterious house fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's category number one. Yeah, that, that, that's the default setting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's about time to wrap things up. Then, one thing that I do want to open up as a question i possibly just as much for the listeners as as for you know each of us is you know this is the first time that we've put out a live recording there's something that's not a special episode is this something that you think we should do in future did it work is it something you want to hear in an episode or are you happier with the studio approach well i guess that about wraps it up so uh good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.